Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour. With well over half a million podcasts out there today, finding the best ones to listen to can be tough. So each week I stick on the headphones, listen to hours and hours of audio and share all the best of it with you. Coming up today, a love letter to stripy clothing. Then how the US president made us eat more pizza. Who were two of the biggest names in New York tabloids? Who was fighting in the open? Who would be the biggest coup if they appeared in the same ad? Dirt Church Radio offers glimpses of trail-running Nirvana. It was only for a couple of hundred metres, but I can remember feeling completely at peace with the world and my place in it. The view, sound of my feet on the trail, and the smell of the Finboss, magic. And the Australian improvisation duo The Bear Pack take one random word and use it as a centrepiece for a whole long-form story. What the hell have I been doing with my life? I feel sorry, like, your mum's funeral was a couple of weeks ago and you weren't even there. I had to start harvesting chilies. And I do love getting all your listening recommendations too. You'll hear me featuring them each week. So next time you hear something good, do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. From zebra crossings to prison uniforms, from Where's Wally to the Breton shirt, stripes have always had a knack for getting our attention. In a BBC documentary called Out of Line, graphic designer Teresa Monacino shares her love of the horizontal line. That what Dennis menaces in, what Henry's horrid in, what burglars burgle in and convicts get paraded in. They're what Picasso paints in and the Ramones rage in. They're the uniform of the outcast, the maverick, the carnivalesque. For me, the ultimate paragon of stripiness just has to be Wally, as in the character in Where's Wally? Or if you're listening in America, Where's Waldo? The iconic creation of illustrator Martin Hanford. I've always loved the double-page spreads of the Where's Wally books, packed with characters and detail and action, so many narratives, all cleverly being played out while we search for Wally in his red and white striped top. So I want to begin this programme with a sort of pilgrimage. I think I can see some activity, some red and white stripes, which is a good sign. Last year, an amusement park in Nagasaki, Japan, was the setting for an extremely stripy world record attempt for the most people dressed as Wally in one place. A huge crowd of 4,626 Wallys congregated to snatch the record from the previous holders, Dublin, Ireland. And we're just coming up to the gates. You can see I'm, we're in good company here. Oh, stripy flyers. Yeah. 
On a hot Hello. Sunday in June, I went to Kirkstall Abbey in Leeds, wallied up to the nines to add my stripes to an attempt to win the world record title for the UK and bring Wally home. And now going through this ancient arch, the scene really does open up into one of Martin Hanford's books. I mean, it's all here. <laughs> so many Wallies families, children, babies and dogs even and in fact we're just about to head up now to the cutest dog dressed as Wally dog show and here too are an enormous range of sizes of dog from a Great Dane right down to a King Charles Spaniel I think that is. It's going to be quite a spectacle I think today. More from the sweaty summer bobble hat wearers of Kirkstall Abbey later, but now to an entirely more glamorous stripe wearer. <laughs> Here we go. Today, most people would have a lot of striped tops, striped items in their wardrobes. It's really quite ubiquitous, the stripe, but it has this fascinating and very long and very interesting history. Amber Butchart is a fashion historian and the best-dressed interviewee I could have hoped for. I'm wearing a lot of stripes right now. Many people would probably say too many different types of stripes. I love nautical stripes, but outside of that, I like other coloured stripes as well. Amber lives on the seafront in Margate, which seems only fitting for the author of a book on nautical chic. We see depictions of striped clothing in portraits of the sea for centuries. If you fall overboard, you're much more likely to be seen if you're wearing striped clothing. So it's almost like an early high-vis in a way. There's a really key moment in 1858 where the French Navy officially adopts the striped marinière into its uniform and it developed this inherently French quality as well. Um, now, what we see in the sort of early 20th century, the early 1920s, is groups of artists start living along the Riviera. There are a couple who are kind of quite central to this lifestyle, Gerald and Sarah Murphy, an American couple, and they set up on the Côte d'Azur in the early 1920s, and it becomes quite a hub for sort of artists and writers of the day, Hemingway, Man Ray, you know, all of these sort of leading lights of modernism. Now, Gerald Murphy was quite a style arbiter. He had a very original sense of style. He loved dressing up, loved going to costume parties. And in the research that I did, it seems likely that he was possibly the first person to buy um, these French fishing undershirts, the striped undershirt, and wear it as a stylistic marker, basically. And quite quickly, you begin to see images of people at this time wearing the striped shirt. There are some great images of F. Scott Fitzgerald wearing the striped top, along with plus fours. It's a very strong look. <laughs> Not long after that, you start to see images also of Coco Chanel uh, wearing a striped top as well. You've no doubt heard the expression of face for radio. Well, if ever there were an outfit for radio, well, then this might be it. Like Amber, I'm wearing horizontal stripes. I've always been told that stripes are fattening and that they should be avoided. But do I really need to fear the hoop? I tracked down the man who could tell me for sure. 
There was a famous case in Arizona where the female inmates of a prison asked the governor whether they could be allowed to wear vertical striped costumes rather than the traditional horizontal hoops. The uh, governor said no. He said if the men have to wear horizontal stripes on their outfits, so did the women. My name is Professor Peter Thompson. I work in the psychology department at the University of York, and my research has been on visual perception, how we see the world. Your re recent research, will horizontal stripes make you look fatter? What made you want to research this? Um, well, it certainly wasn't because I have any keen interest in, in fashion. It was because I was reading the works of Hermann von Helmholtz and his work in the uh, 19th century. And he reported a, what I thought was a really interesting illusion, which is if you take two identical squares and you cover one of them in horizontal stripes and the other in vertical stripes, and I invite you to do this, uh, the one with the horizontal stripes will look narrower and taller than the one with vertical stripes. For example, he says, ladies know that wearing horizontal stripes will make them look taller. He states this as if this is common knowledge in 1867. And I thought, this is very odd, because it's not what I've been told, where people normally say horizontal stripes makes your bum look big. <laughs> Professor Thompson tested whether the Helmholtz illusion applied to stripes in clothing. He began by evaluating our perception of horizontally and vertically striped squares. If you do this with squares, the effect is really quite large. It's certainly between 6 and 10%. So this is a substantial effect, probably a dress size or, or two. I a dress size, my goodness. You know, well, I don't know. What do I know about dress sizes? But <laughs> Before I, moving on to 2D you know, drawings of women. And indeed, um, there is about a 6% effect such that vertical stripes make you look fatter than the horizontal stripes. And eventually studying two and a half D women, 2D drawings with lots of 3D cues. Yeah, I think I, I'm now of the view that horizontal stripes probably don't make a lot of difference to how fat or thin you look, but it's the vertical stripes which are doing you the damage. I mean, wearing black is a good idea. There's good evidence that the, the little black dress is a, is a friend to everyone. Some of Out of Line, presented by Teresa Monacino and produced by Mayor Bosworth for BBC Radio 4. Household name takes some of the biggest names in business, global giants like Starbucks and Coca-Cola, and uncovers surprising stories from their past. So long ago, way, way back before he became US president, Donald Trump played a pivotal role in selling us pizza. It's the mid-90s, and Pizza Hut has a problem. It spent a lot of money and time developing a pizza it thought would be revolutionary. Here it is, the stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut. Stuffed crust pizza. It was covered in cheese and bulging with more cheese in that forgotten wasteland, the crust. But no one wanted it. It was a new product called Stuffed Crust 
The cheese was in the crust. They tried to sell it a million times, a million different ways, and it just would not sell. So it became Janet Lyon's job to fix that. She was kind of a star writer on Madison Avenue. Her bosses called her and her writing partners and told them, Pizza Hut says we're finished unless we can get Americans to buy stuffed crust pizza. They were always walking out the door. They were were always, this is it. They're firing the agency. It's over. We'd screwed up something. I don't know what, but this was just the normal kind of thing. So Jenna and the team got to work. And we were sitting in our office, kind of staring at blank walls. And our third partner, Dennis, immediately, I mean, this never happens, but within seconds of us thinking about this assignment, said, well, you know, the main thing about this pizza is you should tell people they should eat it backwards. They should eat it the wrong way because obviously the best part's in the back of the pizza. So right off the bat, that's the way this product should be sold. They're brainstorming the wrong way. Who would do something so wrong? And I think we went right to celebrities, but have them actually be people that are doing something the wrong way right this minute. And in this era, who were two of the biggest names in New York tabloids? Who was fighting in the open? Who would be the biggest coup if they appeared in the same ad? From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. The show about brands you know and stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. Today, did Donald and Ivana save Pizza Hut stuffed crust? Or did stuffed crust save Donald and Ivana? How did this Frankenstein of a pizza manage to change the course of history and help create a president? We're going to start by looking at the ad itself, how a bitter divorce inspired its creators, and the sordid details of Ivana and Donald on set with a stuffed crust. Then, we'll see how this ad was part of a hungry cycle of tabloid media. Donald Trump and fast food all feeding each other's brands. And finally, we'll follow the stuffed crust story through to today and go back to the plaza where it all began. Stay with us. I imagine there was an urgent meeting at Pizza Hut in the early 90s that went something like this. Our sales are down 20%, one person says. Another pipes up. Our customers are starting to check out Papa John's. Someone slams the table. We need to get people back into our restaurants. We need to innovate. Then in a back room somewhere, a guy has a eureka moment. We can put the cheese in the crust. He brings it to his bosses and they're like, I don't know, will people get it? That's the version in my head at least. What we do know for sure is that Pizza Hut tested out in a bunch of cities and customers are kind of meh about it. So this is when Pizza Hut turns to its ad agency and says, save us or you're fired. Enter Michael Campbell and Janet Lyons. These two wrote a lot of ads together. Big ads, celebrity ads, Super Bowl ads. I mean, we just, you know, fell in love. Janet is married and to somebody else. But you, you, you know, you hear about business uh, husbands and wives. I think we've come as close to that. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and Janet were both executive creative directors at the ad agency BBDO. And after Pizza Hut threatens to pull its business, they get to work in their writer's room, hold up, throwing ideas against the wall. Part of the uh, process is, you know, the, the word right, you know, is is loosely defined. There was that brilliant idea of eating the stuffed crust pizza backwards, the wrong way. And they start thinking of things that were wrong. Thinking more of who's in the news. 
What's going to be famous? What's going to get everybody talking? What would get people talking? They had a lot of ideas. Some even became ads. Ringo Starr and the Monkees, Dennis Rodman. But they had a bigger idea. So Donald Trump and Ivana were getting divorced. The divorce was all over the paper. It was huge. They were still talking about it. It was still a news story that they were fighting and they were they hated each other and all this. Nobody would ever see them, obviously, together ever. They despised each other. They knew Donald and Ivana together would be a killer pairing. And we didn't think Donald and Ivana would say yes, because they really did seem like they hated each other and they wouldn't do this spot. So we were quite shocked when the phone rang back very quickly after we spoke to the agent saying, oh, yeah, they're in. Okay, so before we go any further, you have to hear this ad. Here's the setting. It's the Plaza Hotel, which Ivana redecorated and Donald lost to bankruptcy. Donald and Ivana get close. Do you really think this is the right thing for us to be doing, Ivana? What will people think? Let them talk. Ivana. 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 It's wrong, isn't it? But it feels so right. Then it's a deal? Yes, we eat our pizza the wrong way. Crust first. Introducing stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut. With a ring of cheese baked into a totally new, thinner crust, you'll want to eat it the wrong way. Crust first. May I have the last slice? Actually, you're only entitled to half. In fact, in the real divorce, she got less than half. The making of this cheesy ad tells you a lot about Trump as a person and Trump as a brand. To get a sense of Trump as a person, let's take a moment and talk about what actually went into making this ad behind the scenes. We don't just sit down quietly and type out our scripts. I mean, we, we actually perform we get up, them. we perform them, we yeah. act them, go into a voice, you know, you know we become these characters. And, and, yeah. and, you know, I might say, you know, it's wrong, isn't it? And I would all of a sudden start talking like Ivana and thinking to myself, now what would Ivana say if he said it's wrong? And I would probably say, it feels so right, Donald, but it feels so right. <laughs> and that's a good way to write because you really become the character. These words just start flowing out of you. And, um, and then and you, all quickly, of a sudden you quickly run over to a cat and, over and, write, and write everything down. <laughs> Big limousine rolls up. He comes out and he's wearing his tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, he's dressed for the part. He's dressed for the part. I mean, and we had. And tuxedo. he wanted to start right away. Could not. He understand. was ready. Well, then Ivana comes in, and she has three wardrobe people, two makeup people, a hair person, and we had our own, but she didn't even want to use. She them. wouldn't use anybody. No. Uh, and they go off, and I think we waited two hours. Yeah, we did. He was getting ticked. Yeah. Finally, they start. And then between takes, Donald Trump starts micromanaging. He would come over during, in between takes, and he would say, can you run back? I want to see the film. And then he'd say, okay, I want you to take that. I want you to use that take. Okay, I want you to use this opening. Okay, I think that's the better of this. And we turned to him and we said, Donald, you're not cutting this commercial. Like, we're going to cut the commercial. We're making the commercial. Like, this is, you're just getting paid to be in the commercial. And he's like, okay, when this is over, you'll see that I was right about every single take that I just told you to pick. You'll see. I was right. And I just thought, this is like, this guy's too much. Like, I can't, like, I just, we had never met anyone like him before. Everything about him was so off the charts. He even got involved (laughs) with the lighting. So we get on the set, the camera's all ready to roll, and uh, they're doing, like, the last little touch-ups. And Ivana now is actually standing by the window. And Donald turns to me and he said, "Um, come here. And he looks over and he says, "Uh, I don't think the lighting's very good on Ivana. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look at her butt. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he was it, right. He, he thought it didn't look... It wasn't complimenting her figure It wasn't complimenting right her way. figure. Yeah. I always said that it was basically, he was so critical about that because he was associated with her butt. Uh, so he didn't want anything that reflected on him. 
to look bad. Not so, that he cared about her. No, her I don't her. think he cared about <laughs> as much about her. But it was like, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're divorced, but I was married, so that, that <laughs> Make was. Make sure she looks good. That, you know, be crude. Well, that's his brand. Yeah, well, that, yeah exactly. That, yeah. So they're filming, and they only have a few hours left on the shoot when Michael and Janet realize the ending just isn't working. They needed to change the script. Their writing partner had an idea. And Dennis, our yeah. third partner, said, I think I have a better ending for this thing. What about if they both go for the last piece of pizza? And what if Donald says, sorry, Ivana, you're only entitled to half? So uh, I was like, oh, wow, that's great. Like, that is really funny. Okay. So we go over to ask them about this change because they'd agreed to a script and lawyers agree to the script. And everybody agrees to the script. And so this was not a thing where you could just kind of go off into other things. So we go over to Donald and Ivana and we say, you have this new ending where you say, you know, can I have the last slice? And you say, no, you're only entitled to half. And she says, absolutely not. Oh, that is vulgar. Absolutely not. And he goes, what do you mean? It's really funny. We're doing it. And uh, she says, I will not do it. And he just looks at her and he goes, we're doing it. And, <laughs> and we were, you know, we we're all just kind of standing there holding our breath because, you know, that was, she didn't want to We got one it. take. She did, yeah. And she said she'd only do it once. And uh, luckily, he just, he knocked it out of the park. He's a very good actor. Um, he just, he didn't have to do a second take on anything with him. He just gets it the first time. He, he knows exactly his persona. And luckily, we got it because she wasn't going to do it again because she didn't like it. Some of Donald and Ivana's affair with Pizza Hut. That's episode two of Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher, presented by Dan Bobkoff. Dirt Church Radio's a locally produced show with a focus on trail running, basically running in New Zealand's great outdoors. But don't get the idea that this podcast is a collection of split times and training notes and protein shake recipes and sneaker specifications. No, finding passionate, interesting people to talk to about the things that give them a buzz is generally a pretty good recipe for audio success. And the feature interviews with runners that are the centrepiece for each Dirt Church radio episode reveal a collection of interesting characters whose paths into trail running have often been long circuitous and full of ups and downs. I'll speak to Eugene and Matt who make the show shortly, but I wanted to play you some first. And as well as those longer feature interviews, each episode has this section called The Greatest Run Ever, which lets listeners share those moments when they enter running Nirvana. We have an international one today yeah. to uh, go with our international guest, John Harmon from South Africa. So uh, welcome to you, John. Stumbled across your podcast the other day and have devoured all your episodes. Love them. Great to hear some running news from a different part of the world other than the US and Europe, which is where most of the podcasts I listen to tend to focus on. I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm amazed at the trail running community and multitude of races you've got down there. I was lucky enough to spend a month traveling around your gorgeous country in 2011 when you hosted the World Cup and your podcasts and my Googling episodes each time I hear you and your guests mention a new race means I've added motivation to visit again soon. Fantastic. Please do. Yeah. yeah. Your hashtag greatest run ever is a great feature and got me thinking. I'm struggling to isolate just one out of all the wonderful experiences that running has given me over the years, but I think I can stick to just two. Uh, we can let him get away with that? Yeah, we'll let him get away okay, with that. Okay, just because he's an uh, uh, international listener. All right. The first would be the first time I seconded some mates running their comrades marathon. Ooh. Yeah. I thought I had a pretty good idea of the vibe and energy of the event, having run it a few times, but I was blown away on the side of the road. 
Watching the front runners was impressive, but cheering on and supporting the back runners made for an awesome, inspiring, beautiful day out. With runners from all over the world out on the road and massive crowds cheering for most of the way, it is a day of the year that I'm most proud to be a runner, a supporter, a South African, a spectator. Just writing about it gives me goosebumps. We're just reading it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been down to the route every year since to either run or support. So second is an actual running experience. It is not anything special really, but for me it just sums up the joy of running. I was running along the contour path on Table Mountain early morning and had just run into the shadow of Devil shadow cast of Devil Peak. The trail was sloping gently downhill, the path was firm underfoot, and the view of a Cape Town CBD and up towards Table Mountain was sublime. It was only for a couple of hundred metres, but I can remember feeling completely at peace with the world and my place in it. The view, the sound of my feet on the trail, and the smell of the Finbos, magic. Here's another clip from Episode 7 of Dirt Church Radio, an interview with the American ultramarathon legend Dean Carnassus, who it turns out is actually a pretty late convert to serious running. I quit running um, while I was a teenager. I used to love to run when I was a kid, and then uh, I was in a, a bar in San Francisco on my 30th birthday doing what everyone does on their 30th birthday. I was you know, getting um, drunk with my friends, pissed as a lizard, as you would say. <laughs> And at midnight, I walked out of the bar and just decided I was going to run 30 miles, cold turkey, uh, in my underwear, <laughs> in, in tennis shoes. I didn't even have running shoes. And it kind of changed the course of my life. But, I mean, I, was, I could feel very discontent for about two years leading up to that. And, you know, one thing I really missed is my relationship with nature. Uh, we, I really, really talk about this, but, you know, I am more comfortable in nature, you know, running on a trail by myself than I am in front of an audience or that I am even hanging out with people in a small group. So I have a really intimate relationship with nature. It rejuvenates me. It's like it brings my soul back to life. And I had lost all contact with nature. I, you know, I worked in a corporate environment. I, I never really ventured off into the woods by myself. You know, I'd stop scaling mountains. You know, I'd get on planes. Everything was man-made, a man-made construction to everything I was doing. And you know, here in America, probably 90% of the people live their life exactly like that. They have no relationship with nature. I mean, their relationship is with screens and with other people and with man-made things, you know, malls, cars, you know, elevators, airplanes. And to me, I just felt something, you know, primordial was lacking from my life as, you know, a 30-year-old. And I think a lot of it was just this being out in the wild which I just yearned for. And thankfully I made the decision to, to pursue that versus, you know, remaining within the corporate world. Does that I mean, make sense? Yeah, I hope I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I think to some people that's going to resonate what I just said. Other people are like, what are you talking about? You know, nature, what kind of relationship that's like a walk in, you know, central park or something. But to me, nature is, you know, venturing off um, into real wilderness. Yeah. I think, well, our, our audience is a, is a trail running audience. So I think they'll all be, um, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, 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 preaching to the choir, and they'll they'll all be pumping their fists at the moment. They get it, but I guess for for our you mentioned you know in America that that corporate life, and I guess the same applies to large parts of New Zealand as well. Mm. It's just a, a symptom of of Western life these days. What, what is it that can get through to people that there is another way that you don't have to live that corporate drone lifestyle? Because I guess sorry to tack on to the end of your question. Your approach to life 
or indeed our approach to life as trail runners is quite threatening, I think, for some people. You know, how do you how how do you do that? How do you run? How do you not take a car? You know, you you'll often hear that thing, I couldn't even drive that far, or people kind of tot that out to hide their mm. uncomfortability. How do you get through to people? Or how yeah, what is that moment? You know, you bring up a really good point. I think, you know, there, there, I, I'm noticing a, a growing divide between kind of our group you just described of trail runners that understand what I just articulated and others that just live in this man-made environment. And, and you know, they live in their screens. Um, they've never ventured out, out into the wilderness and don't venture out into the wilderness and don't really understand why you'd want to do that. <laughs> you know, they're, they, they're comfortable in this man-made environment. But sometimes what I've learned is just, one exposure to adventure can flip the switch. I mean, I've taken, especially kids, I've taken a lot of like inner city youth out onto a trail. And, you know, a lot of these kids in their lexicon, the word trail doesn't even really exist. They don't know what a trail is. I mean, mm-hmm. they live in a city. Um, you know, their, their geographical footprint is like literally it's within like a kilometer and a half of their house. That's the largest, you know, they've ever, that's their, their, their world. And to take them out of that even once is such a breakthrough to, to some kids and to some individuals that they change their behavior altogether and change their lifestyle. I remember taking a group um, on a trail run one time from the city that were just road runners, um, you know, running across the Golden Gate Bridge and running up into a place called the Marin Headlands. And they were just awestruck. I mean, to them, you know, running was around as 1500 meters around a track, you know, and track workouts, um, you know, in uniforms and coaches. And all of a sudden, here's this guy taking him on some trail, you know, for whatever distance we want to run for however, however long we want to run. I mean, there was no one saying, you know, today is a, a you know, 10 kilometer workout at pace. I was just saying, let's, let's go run for a few hours and see some things. And just one experience like that can change people. Dean Carnassus interviewed on Dirt Church Radio. Now, the show's made by Matt Raymond, who's a mental health nurse, and journalist Eugene Bingham, and they started it a few months ago. As well as being mad keen runners, they're also big podcast fans and saw that their passion wasn't being very well catered for. So they decided to do something about it and started their own show. I like the name, Dirt Church Radio, so I asked Eugene how they came up with it. It essentially means nothing. It is a nice collection of syllables. I think Dirt Church Radio sounds good. It rolls off the tongue. We have a group of friends who run together most weekends, and Dirt Church was a sort of flippant, you know, we didn't want to call our Facebook messenger group middle-class dad gang, so (laughs) Dirt Church Radio sort of... Or Dirt Church was the, the next obvious choice. Or, or our friend Tom was talking about, he'd always say, well, I'm going to service this morning. Is anyone coming? So Dirt Church went from there. And when we came up with the idea, I mean, I especially didn't want to call it like ultra something or trail run this. or So Dirt Church Radio sounded good and it means nothing, really. Yeah, it means what you want it to mean. So there isn't any profound philosophical thing about it having a whole spiritual dimension, or there is? I read Boff Whaley, who is the guitar player for the band Chumbawamba. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a very avid trail runner, and he wrote a book called Run Wild, which is a really amazing read. And he, he, he's quite into sort of pantheism and, and Thoreau and stuff like that. I quite like that idea. 
but I can't claim to having any sort of deeper theological meaning. It has caused a little bit of confusion when I got a, a suggestion or a recommendation from Stitcher saying, since you like Dirt Church Radio, maybe you like this, and it was some Southern Baptist podcast. Woman's so, group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so there could be a bit of confusion there with people tuning in wanting kind of spiritual guidance and, um, and that kind of thing. Well, we feel we kind of give that as well, yeah. so, you know, we're, we're a broad church. <laughs> broad church radio. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the guy from Chumbawamba's a regular listener. Well, I hope he is. He I mean, could be. He's he, listening. He's, an, he's a really good author. Does he run? Yeah, he runs Let's a get lot. him on the show. Boff Whaley, yeah, yeah, we All should. Right. Yeah. This is the guy who wrote that classic song, I, that's the one. I Get Knocked Out, Then I Get Up Again. That's it, that's, that's him. The one. He's, yeah. he's gone on to even greater things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he runs. He runs. So how did you guys meet for the first time? Was it through running? Yeah, it was through running. Matt organises a local a race here that supports the local school at Riverhead. And so it's it kind of famous in our in our little neck of the woods for that. And I had a friend who uh, was enthused about that race and said, "Hey, you you should meet up with Matt Raymond. He's an ultra runner as well." And so we kind of met through a mutual friend. And then one day I was running along the Hillary Trail. We hadn't actually met. I think we knew each other through social media. And I was running along the Hillary Trail at some awful hour of the morning. And saw this guy running towards me, who'd obviously started well earlier than me in the dark, and thought, who the hell is that? And it was Matt Raymond. And that was the first time we sort of clapped eyes on each other. Mm. And we kind of just started running after that, because we realised that we were both crazy runners and enjoyed running, and we get on really well. And then, yeah, that's kind of how it all started. What do you know about your community of listeners? Like, wh- where are they all? Do you, are they mostly here in New Zealand, or what, what do you know about them? About 80% of our audience is in New Zealand. The rest come from the US, the UK and Australia. The Australian audience is growing, which is interesting. And what we know of them, they're a real enthusiastic bunch. Mm. Uh, We hear from them through social media. We hear from them through our pleas for Greatest Run Ever, so they'll write in to us on the show. Uh, And they're just people who enjoy running, I think, and they like hearing about other runners. And the sort of catchphrase for our podcast is interesting conversations with interesting runners. So we try and just talk to people about stuff that you talk to them about on the trail. So it's not necessarily about running. And I think they, our listeners are people who just enjoy hearing about other human beings and their lives and what makes them tick. Do you guys talk when you're running together? Or is that something you do on the trail or is it something you do afterwards? Is it quite, I won't say competitive, but it's quite physically demanding during the run so you can't really talk at the time? Or how does it work? No, it, I mean, we... And interestingly, since we started Dirt Church Radio, you know, over last summer we were running together every weekend, probably both days. Over the last 13 weeks, we've run together three times and we've seen each other more than we've ever seen each other before, but... Uh, we got out. We had the, the very good fortune to get out both days on the weekend, so we ran Saturday, Sunday. And definitely, I mean, especially on the Sunday, because we were both tired from the Saturday, talking the whole way made what would have been quite a strenuous run in places absolutely just, it was so enjoyable. And so you sort of finish a two-hour run and go, oh, here we go. So, yeah, we're yabbering the whole time, pretty yeah. much. It's a total jaw fest. Yeah. We, uh, we like most runners, and sometimes running becomes secondary. Absolutely. It's actually a social experience. We're out there, 
uh, chatting away about you you can kind of you can get through all sorts of conversations in a run there's lots of laughs there's lots of joking but you can also have some really deep conversations and I think you know maybe it's a male thing when if you're sitting opposite each other you might sort of grunt "Mm, how you going mate yep good mate yep but when you're running on the trail side by side and you're both a bit tired and you're in nature, you kind of open up a bit mm. and you talk a bit more than maybe you would across the table from each other. So running is very social for us and for our listeners as well. And that's what we try and replicate on the show is those conversations that you have when you're out there running. Trying to capture that is mm. what, we're, what we're trying to do. And most of the, uh, there's actually a term for it. It's called autonomous intimacy. And it's that thing that through shared, I think suffering's the wrong word because it's it's such an enjoyable thing. But through shared, I guess, or physiological output or shared challenge or something, challenge, yeah. yeah, it's an intimate thing, you know. And I think our show reflects this as we really talk about, really talk about running to the people we talk to, if that makes yeah. sense. So whilst Eugene and I are both massive running nerds, like we could get lost in the minutia of running, you know, you can Google someone's marathon splits. So if I get the opportunity to talk to, say, someone like Dean Carnassus or Mael Backhausen or Malik, and I'm going to be asking about who they are and what they are, not, like, what they do. Yeah, we don't really want to say, oh, so you went through the 30K split in what time? You know, yeah. that's kind of, I mean, yes, Matt says we're running geeks, we love that stuff, but that's kind of boring. It's, we're far more interested in what was going on, what did it take to get there, how do they function, how do they tick. Matt Raymond and Eugene Bingham of Dirt Church Radio. And you can find details of Eugene and Matt's favourite podcasts if you go to our website now. That's rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. The Bear Pack are an improvised storytelling duo from Australia. Steen Raskopoulos and Carlo Ricci use a single random word to start an unscripted story that's often more than half an hour long. Hey guys, it's Steen and Carlo from The Bear Pack. We're about to perform a never-before-heard radio play using a suggestion from a random phone call that we made. Calling comedian Emma City. Good, Emma, how are you? Hey, Emma, it's Steen as well. Yeah, We're both here together. Yeah, Steen and I are calling up. We're getting a word for an improv show, and we were just hoping you could give us that word. <laughs> I, mean, I don't get it. Sorry, I think I can't hear you quite properly. So no, you, no, you heard us correctly, Emma. Now. We just need a word, we any just, word. Just need any word right at now. all. Okay, perfect. Okay, um, uh, chili. 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 Oh, that's terrific. Thanks very much, Emma. Thanks, Emma. We'll call no you back after worries. this. Good luck, guys. Bye. 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 Took a bloody hell of a lot of time. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of space. Four thousand acres. Well, I'm a man of my word, mate. And here's that schooner of beer. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Ta. Mmm. Well, you may as well burn it. Burn it. 
Yeah, well, I don't need I don't need four four thousand acres of chili. I've already got my, I've already got my own business. I can't look over two businesses now. Well, what the what the hell did you bet me for four thousand acres worth of chili for? Well, just a joke, little practical joke. I don't think you're actually going to go go away with it. Well, mate, have you you're saying you I haven't seen you for a year because you've been trying to grow four thousand acres of chili. Yeah. You've missed out on a lot of significant events, mate. Mate, you don't have to tell me that. I've been out here <laughs> growing 4,000 acres of chilli. Weren't you supposed to get married last year? Yeah, I called off. My whole life has gone to... Like, I gave it for everything to grow 4,000 acres worth of chilli. Oh, well, now you can go back to your job. Why did you make me do it? For a bloody joke, mate. I don't think you're actually going to do it. It's like, oh, just um, see if you can throw that shoe over that house. That would have been fine. I mean, you, you said... You said to me, I, you said to me, hey, I need 4,000 eggs. And I said, I reckon I could grow 4,000 eggs for the chili. Yeah, chair. I said, I bet you you can't. I bet you a schooner of beer that you can't do yeah, it. Yeah, but you, pref- you proceed this whole thing with a demand for chilies. That's what this whole thing started. No, I just said, I bet you can't. I didn't say I needed them desperately. Well, then what the, what the hell have I been doing with my life? I feel sorry. Like, your mum's funeral was a couple of weeks ago and you weren't even there. I had to start harvesting chilies. Well, I don't know what to say to you, mate. Oh, God. God. I gave up my, my relationship, my, my friends, my family. I put everything into these goddamn chilies. Well, maybe you should keep putting into Go, these ghost chilies. Ghost chilies. arrows. Bird's eye chilies. Bird's eyes chilies? Yeah, bird's eye chilies. Is that an actual thing? Yes. You sure? Yes. <laughs> okay. I've heard of the first two. No, well, they're all chilies. Mate, if there's one thing I know a lot about, it's chilies. Did you even like try them? Are they any good? I hate chilies. I don't like spicy food. I don't like eating them. They're not good to me. What the hell am I going to do with 4,000 acres worth of chilies? It's got to be what? Two, three, um, maybe three and a half million tons of chilies. Oh, I don't know, mate, but I've got to get going, right? <laughs> don't leave me. No, I promise to take the kids to the movies tonight. You promised the kids to go to the movies tonight? Yeah, because I've got a family to I've got after, nearly four million... <laughs> I've got nearly four million kilos... Of bloody chilies, yeah, and you're you're just gonna go to the movies. Did I keep keep my end of the bargain? Did I keep my end of the bargain? You gave me, yeah. Did I gave you the schooner? Like yes, I you did. You well, did. then my my work is done. Our deed has finally been sealed. Okay, it's over. All right, you did it. Congratulations. I gave you your beer. Good luck, mate. Good luck with the rest of your life. Oh, well, thanks, Pete. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, mate, but. You know, I've got to make sure I take the kids to the Phantom Thread. <laughs> You're taking your kids to see Phantom Thread? Wait, Daniel Day-Lewis, they need to learn from a master. How old are your kids? <laughs> 13 and 6. I think they're 13 and 6. Yeah. I think, I reckon, I don't want to be patronised. Right, there like... is no age for greatness. They need to see Daniel Day, mate. It's, a free... it's his last, it's his last, apparently, it's his last... Film he's going to act in. Have they seen his other films? What, you want me to show them there will be blood? Oh, I'm just saying, like, if it's... Mate, so he impo- kills a kid with a f***ing <laughs> bowling pin over the head. Yeah, but... If the kid's a third and sick, you sick...
I'm just saying. No, mate, that's gross, mate. You've overstepped the mark there. You've clearly overstepped the <laughs> then mark. Then why is it so important that they're seeing his last film? Because this one's safer, mate. He just makes dresses, apparently. Yeah, I think there's a there's actually a lot more at play in that film. Well, have mate. you seen it? I have... Well, no spoilers, mate. I'm not trying to spoil no it. No spoilers. It's the only release I've had. I, I harvest chilies all day and then I go to the pictures. What? Seen all of the hits. Saw I, Tonya the other day. Yeah? Great film. Mario Robbie. Bloody hell. I remember when she was, you know, doing Life on the SBS. Remember that? No. Uh, you know, Phantom Thread. Great one. Uh, yeah, Shape of Water. Yeah? Not into it. No? Uh, it, that's, yeah. it was beautifully filmed. Great sets. Do you know it goes well with water? What's chilies. <laughs> Mate. I'm trying to, I'm trying to move past it. I'm trying to move faster, mate. But you can't just keep bringing me back in mate, the mud. Once again, I'm running late. They love watching the trailers. All right? They love watching the trailers. And if I can't give them the trailers, then I'm not even a father. I wouldn't want to get between your and your kids' relationship, mate. So yeah, I'm sorry, mate. But I've got to go. All right. Well, thanks for coming by, mate. Yep. Huru, mate. Huru, huru. What am I going to do with all these chilies? Oh, f*** Hello? Alejandro? Si. Yeah, Alejandro, it's, it's, it's Michael. Ah, Miguel. How yeah. are you? Yeah, Michael Tuppence. Uh, no, Alejandro, I'm going to be honest with you, mate. I'm in a bit of a bind. Do you know... You don't, you don't need any chilies, do you? Oh, yeah. uh, we're pretty full of chilies at the moment. Oh, like, if you could take one or, or two million tonne of chilies, it'd really help me. How out. much did you say? I've got four million tonne of, of chilies, mate. I'm... But why would you build this many? There's too many chilies. Yeah, uh, mate, no one knows more than I do, you know. I've, I grew. Grew four thousand acres worth. Four thousand acres of chilies. I had to buy new land to do it. I mean, no this is unheard of. You must have sacrificed so much. Uh, Alejandro, you're one of the few friends that's still speaking to me, mate. It's it's pretty pretty bleak. This is unbelievable. Uh, uh, I just run a small restaurant in town. I I only need a few chilies per week, so maybe I could take a few. A box. Do you know it? Can I freeze them or? <laughs> I do not know this question. Oh God, Alejandro, man, I'm, I'm in a real, I'm in a real bind, mate. Why did you do it in the first place? Oh, it was a bet. It was what? A bet, yeah. And what did they give you? A million dollars? Uh, two million? No, three million. Gave me a schooner. What? Yeah, a schooner of beer. Are you a f-ing idiot? No, it was. Well, I thought he had a plan for the chilies. I thought there was going to be something. It's going to come from the chilies. Like, so you built 4,000 acres of chilies. There's a lot you of You sacrificed so much over a year. Yeah. And all in return was for a beer. For a schooner, a beer, yeah. Far out. I cannot help you, my friend. Uh, well, Alejandro... Have you thought about burning it all? I'm not... I, I just... I, my mate suggested the same thing. I just, I just feel... Well, one, there's the food waste, and two, I mean, it's been a whole year of my life that I'd just be essentially sending up into the air, you know? Ah, see, 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 see. I listen, the restaurant is pretty busy, and I promised my children I would go to take them to the Phantom Thread. <laughs> You're taking your kids to the Phantom Thread as well? See, see, see. Daniel oh, yeah. Day-Lewis is amazing. Yeah, I know, he definitely is. I mean, 
he's an incredible actor, but I just don't like. I don't see why everybody wants to take their kids to see Venom Thread. I mean, okay, good luck with the chilies. All right, see you, Alejandro. They keep that up for another 20 minutes of chili-related chat, believe it or not. And I love those moments when they're almost losing it and cracking each other up. Steen Raskopoulos and Carlo Ricci of The Bear Pack. And you can listen to the rest of that and five other stories if you search for The Bear Pack wherever you get your podcasts. And that's about it from me and the podcast staff for now, as well as The Bear Pack. You've been listening to Out of Line from BBC Radio 4, Household Name and Dirt Church Radio. From me, Richard Scott. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.